0: Welcome to Tuesday Home Time as we enter the final month of winter. Although, with climate change upon us, who knows what's ahead? A bit of times for us all, but we all have a part to play. But no play for the next two hours, and today we have a report back from the 51st Pacific Islands Forum held this year in Suva, Fiji, with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Then to the People's Forum on the Ukraine War subtitled What is Australia's Role in Giving Peace a Chance? I'll be speaking with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees who put it all together with help from friends. And later in the program Dr Sue Wareham from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War is one of those friends. For those who would like an all expenses paid luxury tour of apartheid Israel will tell you how to go about it, or else Jessica Morrison from APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network will. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy about the past week, as he saw it. And don't forget, done by law at 6pm.
1: A week, Jan, listener, when, amid a declining economic outlook, well, what else would we expect? It's normal. A new socialist government inherits the mess, then goes about putting capitalism back on its feet so the caring business class and hayseed and cheap-sheet coalition lots can come back and stuff it up again. Thank goodness, at least, the Socialist Party never considers there might be a better cure than reviving the capitalist patient. Amid all that... There couldn't be a worse time to unleash anarchy and thuggery against those most esteemed of caring business class practitioners, the developers and construction giants, whose sole concern is the good of the community, in putting a roof over people's heads and over workers' workplace heads, the very workers who repay them with such disdain. Why, no less a brilliant incisive legal mind as caring business class party shadow, caring business class relations guru, Michaelia the workers predicted the end of the world as we know it. They will do anything to appease the CFWMAU and in doing so will put Troublowazi's economic recovery at risk. That is the recovery that big economic guru Jim Chalmers-Capital says is going downhill already, a downhill recovery. Why, Jim said real wages are at a 12-year low, would not reach the peak of 2020 for some uh, for, for eons, which in itself was a peep that lazy, avaricious workers somehow missed. But it does show just how difficult it is to increase real wages, because caring employers have had nothing else on their minds for years. And it exposes the fallacy of a fiscally ignorant electorate throwing out the coalition lot, because back in his March budget, a mere four to Friday icebergs, now Friday himself, promised workers could expect their pay packets to begin increasing at the fastest rate in decades within months, like about now, just after the election. So what a mistake throwing them out hasn't the socialist lot got a lot to answer for? And instead of bringing us Josh's workers' utopia, they're pouring coal onto the industrial fire by getting rid of the smash the evil construction union's jackboots commission, whose chief inquisitor displayed his concern for lazy, avaricious workers by decrying the impact of this on workers, on the workers who are employed to smash the evil construction workers, showing what a compassionate inquisitor he is. The, uh, The utter disaster summed up by the Master Builders Profits Association, a good union. The all-being Uzi government is abandoning the construction industry. There! that says it all the thuggery runs to such evil as not respecting the god-given right of workers not to join a union wanting union stickers on their helmets and uniforms flying a union flag and worst of all carrying on about safety issues on the job crippling costs for their caring employers or as the master builders prophets explained Everyone knows it's a dangerous industry, but they won't accept that. They're they're making it even more dangerous for caring employers. Uh, But but, but they do take the risks. Um, Caring employers take all the real risks. The only slight sliver of light, and we can only hope... The caring business class minister Tony, Tony Bark radicalism said of the upcoming government summit between caring employers and evil unions that the boot, better off overall test, could be on the table, that important caring business class relations principle, that for workers to be better off, they must become worse off. Now we know stabbing in the back is an important element of parliamentary democracy and it's all very well when they do it to each other. But when the poor victim is the caring business class, it shows to what depths the socialist government will sink. See, the caring business class government had a fail-safe plan to guarantee the bloated inefficient public sector NBN network benefited from the efficiency of the private sector by turning the cash cow over to the private sector. But the timing had to be perfect, like when the public purse had spent trillions setting the NBN up to the point where it would start turning over a neat little profit. Then the time would be right to hand the inefficient to the efficient. And now that plan has been has been cruelly thwarted. The new government says it won't privatise it. Talk about ratting on the caring business class. What a waste. All those lovely, lovely profits ending up in the public coffers. Don't they care about this country? The government's done its role. It's, it's funded the whole thing. Now it's time to step back and let market forces play their monopolistic role. The only slight ray of light is that the announcement said the government will retain NBN Co. in public hands for the foreseeable future. There's a faint hope there, I suppose. And it's not like socialist governments haven't been active in privatizing public assets for the common good and then forking out trillions whenever they lose, they uh, hold their hand out like the airline which used to be our airline. The Indo-Pacific's trained killer good guys got together this week to hear the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world's number one trained killer. Well, number two, if you count the commander-in-chief, General Mark My Words Milley warned that the bad guy, evil, evil China, wants to bully or dominate the Indo-Pacific, citing aggressive evil threats to U.S. of and and true train killer floating and flying, merchandise of death. Uh, now, where is this aggression taking place, Mark, my words? In the South China Sea, clearly an area in which the U.S. of has responsibility to protect the peace. My God, yes, yes, what aggression. But, by the way, how many evil Chinese train killer vessels or jets have been sailing or flying off the U.S. of, Californian or Atlantic East Coast? Perish the thought. If they did, we would have to take immediate action to sink them, shoot them down, eliminate them. The peace-loving U.S. Army could not ignore such blatant aggression in our sovereign waters. Uh, Yes, true, but but how far do your, your sovereign waters go? In the interest of peace, we limit our sovereign control to the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian, and all other waterways. Evil China and evil Russia are free to navigate everywhere else, Uh, so presumably in their own rivers and uh, and lakes, Uh, as long as they do so in a non-aggressive manner and don't force the peace-loving US Army to take steps in the interest of that peace. Uh, Thank you, Mark, my words. Make sure you let people know how evil, evil China is, or you'll be hearing from me. Oh, I will, I will. Have a good day or else. Over in the U.S. OBS, scientists are warning of a huge increase in shark numbers along the east coast, due, they believe, to climate change, if there is such a thing, and conservation protection measures. But as many sharks as there may be swimming in the east coast waters, they would be nothing compared to the sharks swimming in the Wall Street and Washington and numerous other caring business class waters. On climate change, if there is, Big Supremo Anthony Alben was sticking by uh, his commitment to a 43% emissions reduction by 2030 target. Uh, so, how will you achieve these cuts, Anthony? We're passing legislation. Uh, yes, yes, but, but how will you then achieve the target? I just told you, we're passing legislation. But Anthony refused to include an, an end to new coal and gas um, extraction. Because uh, that would be a disaster for the economy. Uh, but, but what about the disaster for the environment, for the climate, for the, for the planet and, and its inhabitants? Don't you listen? I said we're passing legislation. Look, you're confusing two issues that are totally unrelated. Emission reduction on the one hand and more coal and gas on the other so it's looking promising legislation with no detail and more coal and gas that should work wonders and satisfy the millions who voted for action on climate change if there is caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable peter duffer declared abolishing the smash the evil unions jackboots Commission, so the socialist party was a captive of the evil unions and also he would never support the 43% emission reduction target because that would be a disaster for all of us and especially the all of us in the caring business class and he is not happy about giving indigenous true blue Aussies some sort of voice they've gone you know like more than 230 years without like you know any sort of and so like if it ain't broke you know uh, and anyway the police and the courts are in contact with them all the you know like time and i thought imagine what he'd be like if he didn't now have the new caring soft warm fuzzy feet and on recognition wonder if he's noticed the tributes to archie roach don't know if you watched the um, last night of the proms on telly on, telly on Wednesday last last week, but the, la, they were last years, the first in three years with an audience, but if you did or didn't, and it doesn't change this, I'm not sure why I asked that, but doesn't change, top marks to the tenor Stuart Skelton, who almost managed, no one could totally manage, but almost managed to make I Still Call Australia home, sound decent, rather than the sentimental, mawkish crap that it is. The perfect timing of the week award, two headlines, same day. Uh, the buy now, pay later party is over. And the second, after pay founders reap $264 million payday. Pay now, buy later. For their perfect timing, the party's just starting. While most of their ex-customers are having a little bit of, of uh, trouble with the pay later bit. But they didn't have to worry about that anymore. As a private equity mob take over the crook casino from Jamie Puker after exposés of just how crook it is, Steve McCann, get rich quick, after just over a year in the job, walked away with a nine million payday. Nice work if you can get it. But of course, if he were a punter, he'd be banned for the unsocial crime of winning while the new owners said they hope their luck changes. What is there to change? They've bought a private mint. Finally, on Crooks, a couple of weeks ago, we redressed a long-term oversight by the week that was, providing a financial report. We reported that some shares that went up today will probably go down tomorrow and some shares that went down today will probably go up tomorrow. We admitted our oversight, but I refuse to cop the criticism from the thousands of calls we haven't received that we don't match the Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin in reporting gang warfare and gang killings and criminal dynasties, criminal celebrities to whom they love to give air. In other words, we don't report on gangs of crooks. Rubbish. We comment every week about the Caring Business Class. Good afternoon.
0: And if you'd like more of Kevin, nine o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. You're listening to Up, 855 AM,
2: the voice of the community.
3: Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants, with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plantlistsapsyarriyarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter.
0: Back on home soil after a visit to Fiji to cover the 51st Pacific Islands Forum is journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Nick, who was there and who was absent?
2: Well, most of the Presidents and Prime Ministers from around the region uh, came to this meeting. It was the first face-to-face meeting that Pacific leaders have had since 2019, where they gathered in Tuvalu. So coming to Fiji was important, but there were a number of uh, people who didn't turn up, and uh, many of those significant. Forum host Frank Bainimarama had uh, hosted the meeting, trying to bring together a rather fractured organisation because over the last few years, a number of countries from Micronesia in the northern Pacific have been very critical of the way in which their primary concerns have been downplayed or ignored. And the big shock at the meeting was that Kiribati announced it wouldn't participate in the forum anymore. President Tanes Mamal of Kiribati um, didn't turn up and instead wrote a letter saying that, unlike the other four Micronesian states... Um, he would continue the process of withdrawal from the forum. The other four states uh, that had talked about walking out of the forum have changed their mind after an agreement was negotiated in May this year. A couple of them were missing from the, the meeting, um, but uh, uh, for, for various reasons, ranging from elections to COVID to other, other reasons. But Mamau's decision not to turn up was significant and is going to take some time to resolve.
0: What were the primary concerns that weren't being addressed?
2: Most of the uh, smaller island states in the forum have long complained about the belief that their particular concerns related to their small size and distance aren't being addressed by the larger powers. You know, there are 18 members of the um, Pacific Islands Forum, and they range in size from big countries like Australia, 26 million people. Papua New Guinea, nearly 9 million people. BNG's got a bigger land area and population than New Zealand, which is the third largest, Fiji. But the smaller countries, you know, can range in size down to Palau and Tuvalu, which have about 15,000 people each. Even Niue, which is just 1,500. That's obviously the concerns of a big country like Papua New Guinea, uh, with a large land area, huge ocean space, big population um, in rural areas and so on. There are different concerns from these smaller island nations. Of the eight members of the forum that are smaller island nations, five are Micronesian states. So these are low-lying atoll countries like Palau, the Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, Nauru, Kiribati. Nauru is a big rock, but the others are all low-lying atoll countries by and large. And they're worried about things like transport, connectivity and um, internet connections, access to jobs for the young people, broader questions about fisheries and of course climate change uh, which is a, a serious and existential threat for many of the, the atoll nations. And for a long time the SIS group has argued that um, you know the, the priority given to the forum by donor countries doesn't really adapt to their particular needs and their scale of operations. The other problem is that this is at a time of incredible geopolitical contest, most notably between the United States and China in the Pacific Islands. And as we know, Australia is very closely aligned to the American position in the contest with China that sees um, a lot of geopolitical players operating in the region. And that's not just the US and China, but also the European Union, France. Britain wants to come back to the Pacific, even though they are a declining uh disrupted colonial power, these sort of geopolitical contests overlay the day-by-day challenges around poverty, around uh, uh, climate change, around development, around infrastructure that are the concerns of countries everywhere in the world. For the smaller island states in the, the northern Pacific, they're so-called compact states, these are three countries, Palau, Marshalls, FSM that have got uh, compacts of free association with the United States. And that means while they have their own parliaments, their own presidents, they also have uh, defense and foreign policy ties to the US. And at a time of competition with China, that complicates decisions within the forum, particularly because many forum member countries like Papua New Guinea, Fiji and others, Samoa and more, want to have relations with everyone, not just with uh, US aligned uh, countries.
0: So is China the elephant in the room in forums like this or not?
2: Well, this year the forum leaders deliberately tried to um, put off the annual meeting that they hold with the major players. There are 21 what they call dialogue partners. These are large countries and some not so large. They want to engage with the 18 members of the forum. So it's the United States, China, France, EU... Britain, Malaysia, right down to other countries like Turkey and Italy and others that have pretty small interests in the region, but nonetheless are significant donors, are key partners on some trade issues and so on. So you've got this, um, this debate about whose agenda is being driven in the forum. Is it the priority concerns of island nations, particularly around climate change, or is it the agendas that come from the larger donors and development partners who often have global rather than regional agendas um, on the table? And that's why forum meetings are often disrupted over things like jousting between uh, Taiwan and China, between the Americans uh, competing with China for um, friends and favour, and that's been particularly the case in recent uh, years with France wanting to protect its colonial role in the Pacific by extending its support for climate and other areas. One of the, the real debates that's happened in recent years has been the forum trying to develop an agenda that they've dubbed the Blue Pacific, trying to say we have our own priorities around climate, around oceans, around fisheries, around development and infrastructure, around telecommunications. All of those within the Blue Pacific And they want to really um, uh, advance that agenda without being, you know, overridden by the agenda of more powerful and, frankly, richer countries.
0: It sounds, Nick, with all those countries having their say in the area that this forum has survived for so long. Well,
2: it's been more than 50 years. You know, the 50th anniversary of the forum, which was founded in 1971, was not marked properly because of the uh, COVID pandemic. The leaders couldn't come together face-to-face. So part of the the event in Suva, you know, this month was really to commemorate 50 years of collective action because the central theme of the forum is that working together, working collectively, gives a weight to um, uh, the voice of Pacific Island countries on the international stage that they can't get one by one but that's the debate the time of the pandemic it was shown that you know many presidents and prime ministers have to look inwards have to focus on the concerns and priorities of their own citizens rather than think about regional cooperation and uh, you know over the years the Pacific has created a whole range of regional institutions and networks political organizations to try and build up the numbers so things like the University of the South Pacific is a regional university. It has main campuses in uh, Vanuatu, in Fiji, but extension centres in every country, every island country around the region. There are regional bodies like the Forum Fisheries Agency, which, as the name suggests, focus on protecting the sustainability of ocean fisheries, particularly tuna, which is a huge resource for the Pacific countries. So it's about managing fisheries improving revenues and royalties that come from deep water fishing nations coming into the vast exclusive economic zones of these ocean states Um, it's about uh, the future sustainability of fishing stocks when you've seen how you know the north sea the atlantic increasingly the indian ocean have been fished out by the plunder of uh, fishing nations can that be done without damage in the pacific and that's a huge issue that's on the agenda for island states as they try and protect their maritime zones um so these are the sort of challenges that are that are on the agenda and at this forum um, one of the key decisions was to adopt a, a strategy document called the 2050 strategy for the blue pacific continent this idea that the pacific islands are linked as a, as a liquid continent that they've got to set their own strategy over the next 20 or 30 years um, looking forward uh, in order to to advance their own agenda at a time of incredible global change and global challenge.
0: Do they point out how this could happen?
2: One of the the things that's going on is that there's really a review being undertaken over the next couple of years about whether the regional institutions are actually fit for purpose. You know, there's all sorts of practical questions about overlap of mandates, different memberships of the regional organisations. Some regional organisations like the South Pacific Regional Environment Programme and the Pacific Community, the SPC, include colonial powers like the United States and France as full members. The Forum, though, doesn't, and they see these uh, great powers as as partners, as donors, but not as members of the the regional body. Um, So there's a question about membership of the regional organisations, there's a question about their mandate. There's always a question about funding. You know, the old Scottish saying, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Um, There's long been discussion about whether major donors, particularly Australia and New Zealand within the forum, drive the agenda according to their interests rather than the priority of the smaller island states. And that's been the concern of the Micronesian states that countries that want to put money into the Pacific region, want to put technical assistance and staff, put diplomatic effort uh, and so on into the region, are often pushing their own agenda, their own barrow, rather than the agenda of these small and often low population nations that are far from the centres of world capitalism, far from the uh, the labour mobility that drives uh, a lot of regional politics. And uh, are often disconnected and inconvenienced by poor shipping and airline connections, low bandwidth in in this age of the internet, and so on. So the smaller island states who make up a a, a large chunk of the forum are saying, hang on guys, you have to pay attention to us or we won't play ball. And that's the real challenge, this review of the regional architecture, the regional institutions that will be undertaken by leaders over the next few years, is part of seeing... You know, as the world changes and as tensions between the United States and China polarise, that fight isn't going to go away in the next few decades. It's really important that Pacific countries uh, have mechanisms that they can use to advance their own agendas through diplomacy, through action, uh, through funding and more.
0: I'm pretty sure the forum would have noticed the difference between the government of Scott Morrison and the new government of Australia at the forum.
2: Absolutely, and um Albo, Penny Wong, Pat Conroy, the Minister for Pacific and Inter- Pacific Affairs and International Development, uh, were all present um, for part or all of the week uh, activities. You know, Albanese got a very warm welcome, and uh, that's partly at a personal level. 2019, I was reporting on the Islands Forum uh, in uh, Tuvalu, and the Forum Leaders Retreat, where the, just the presidents and prime ministers take time out by themselves, without officials and without uh, a formal agenda, to talk amongst themselves. That meeting in Tuvalu in 2019 went on for hours and hours and hours into the night, finished about nine o'clock at night, because there was a brawl going on between forum host uh, Aneli Sopoanga of Tuvalu and then Prime Minister Scott Morrison over climate policy. And Morrison, you know, afterwards was described on the record by leaders as arrogant as condescending, as insulting. You know, Morrison's refusal to take action on the most urgent security, development, economic issue facing the the islands, climate change, uh, really caused an enormous amount of anger. Albanese's recent pledge to increase the um, ambition of emissions reductions from 26 to 28% by 2030 to 43% was welcomed by forum leaders. Having said that, however, there are a number of shots across the bows. Albanese said to journalists um, in Suva that no one had raised coal with him during the bilateral meetings that he held. I don't think he was paying attention because forum host uh, Varengi Bainarama tweeted that um, while welcoming the 43% target set by the new Albanese government, they wanted much more and they wanted more action, urgent changes in order to um, uh, match the science and keep um, global warming below 1.5 degrees um, increase uh, against pre-industrial temperatures. You know, this is a crucial existential threat for Pacific Island countries, as it is indeed for our own nation. Pacific leaders, while welcoming Australia's uh, steps in the right direction, are saying it's still not enough. And Bainimarama, in a number of speeches called out major industrialising powers like China and India, the United States, the European Union and Australia to do more on fossil fuels and so Albanese is in a bit of a honeymoon period um, simply because he's not Scott Morrison at a personal level political level and Australia has at least recognised that you know, climate change is part of the, the regional security architecture that has to be addressed, that's a step forward having said that most island nations are under no illusion that Australia has still a long, long way to go. There's enormous concern about subsidies, for example, massive multi-billion dollar subsidies every year to fossil fuel interests within Australia. There's great concern that um, the Albanese government is still not saying that they'll stop the opening of new coal and gas fields in Australia. And when you think about Scarborough, the Beetaloo Basin and other areas that are, are ripe for um, exploration and exploitation of uh, gas, oil and other fossil fuels, uh, there's a lot of concern in the Pacific that we shouldn't be adding to the problem. Similarly, there was no clear statements um, at the forum meeting about climate finance. That's the catchphrase for the sort of funding that can be used to help countries make the transition away from um, coal or oil, particularly in the Pacific, oil-fired power generation, towards renewables. It's about the funding for adaptation. That means adapting to the adverse effects of climate change, where, uh, you know, people want to uh, take a whole range of steps to allow communities to adapt. And most importantly, and this is where Australia has been on the wrong side of history, to address questions around loss and damage in the global climate negotiations, loss and damage is the term used to describe the effects of extreme weather events that are often climate-driven, climate-induced, that are causing loss and damage now, not problems in the future. And given what we've seen in the last few years with bushfires in Australia, with repeated flooding in northern New South Wales and Queensland, even in Sydney, the capital city, you know, Australia has already been hit by extreme weather events that are climate induced. Australia faces massive rebuilding costs, uh, changes to insurance, um, damage to people's livelihoods and jobs. Um, This is loss and damage that's happening now. And Australia has for years and years under both Labor and Liberal governments fought against the creation of a financing facility for developing countries who face the same challenge around loss and damage. And this is an issue that isn't gonna go away Across the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, particularly in Europe and parts of the United States, Canada, there are massive fires underway. There's heat waves that are killing hundreds and hundreds of people across Europe as we speak because their infrastructure is not geared for the sort of temperatures that we're now seeing and will continue into the future. So whether it's fire, whether it's flood, whether it's heat waves, there's all sorts of extreme weather events that are causing loss and damage. And developing countries are saying that the... Countries that have created the problem, the major industrialising powers, should be financing not just adaptation for the future, not just the transition from uh, fossil fuel energy to renewable energy, but also the loss and damage that's been caused. And this is a fight that's going to continue this year in Egypt, who are hosting the next Conference of the Parties, uh, COP27, as it's called. These are issues that Albanese didn't really want to talk about at the Suva Forum, but um, are going to be there next year and the year after and the year after when he comes back to meet with the fellow uh, forum member countries.
0: Was the push for deep-sea mining discussed?
2: Not much. It wasn't central to the agenda this time, but it's certainly underlaying a lot of regional discussions about the Blue Pacific. And it's a controversial issue because a few forum member countries, a few forum island countries, particularly Nauru, uh, also Tonga and the Cook Islands, are very strong supporters of deep-sea mining. These are countries that don't have a lot of natural resources. They have pretty small labour markets, so there's unemployment is a a problem. Uh, A country like Tonga has had terrible disruption uh, by the volcano that hit uh, Tonga in January, disrupting the economy and causing massive infrastructure damage. Cook Islands is a tiny country, very reliant on tourism, and the last few years have been really tough on them. Now Rue's big money spinner at the moment hosting asylum seekers and refugees and they're in the middle of a COVID pandemic because of that. So these governments are supportive of deep sea mining, the idea that using modern technologies, international corporations can explore within uh, territorial boundaries or in international areas under their control, under the International Law of the Sea, the Convention on the Law of the Sea, these corporations are now looking... To tap into deep water resources. And this can be oil and gas exploration, particularly uh, minerals and rare earths that can be found on the ocean floor. There are manganese nodules, polymetallic nodules that include, you know, valuable minerals like nickel, cobalt, uh, manganese and others. And so when you've got a country, say, like French Polynesia, with five million square kilometers of exclusive economic zone, Um, That's an awful lot of ocean floor that has marine biodiversity and ocean resources. And as it gets harder to mine resources on land in many cases because of disputes over the environment, um, there's a new frontier of countries, uh, major industrialising powers, wanting to tap into these ocean resources. And it's going to be a real debate in the 21st century.
0: I'm speaking with journalist and researcher, Nick McClellan, recently back from the 51st Pacific Islands Forum in Fiji.
2: Despite these few countries supporting deep sea mining, a number of countries are deeply opposed to it. Fiji, for example, has called for a moratorium on deep sea mining and earlier this year a new alliance of parliamentarians called the Pacific Parliamentarians Alliance on Deep Sea Mining. Surprise, surprise. They've called for a regional dialogue on the potential environmental impacts of deep sea mining before further work can commence. The small island state of Tuvalu recently announced that it wouldn't go ahead with earlier plans to um, continue exploration and potential exploitation of deep sea minerals. So you've got a number of countries saying, despite uh, the growing technology that may open up uh, exploitation of deep sea minerals, the rush to uh, this uh, new frontier is being done without proper environmental consideration. People really don't know what happens to uh, uh, the deep sea environment if you're going to be uh, plundering uh, these uh, ocean resources. So this is going to be a big fight next year rather than this year, simply because uh, the host for the 2023 forum meeting will be the Cook Islands, and they're a strong supporter of deep sea mining. The Cooks has already issued three exploratory licenses to investigate deep-sea resources in its waters and indeed an exploration vessel arrived um, last month uh, for programs in the um, Cook Islands Exclusive Economic Zone. During the forum I interviewed the Cook Islands Special Envoy to the meeting, uh, Tepeiru Herman, who quite openly rejected calls for a moratorium on deep-sea mining that's coming from many Pacific civil society groups and many island governments. She says that for her small country the the moratorium proposals sort of set arbitrary timeframes rather than focusing on the science. And the Cooks claims that they've done the research to um, ensure that the environmental issues are taken strongly. Now, many others disagree, and I think there's going to be a big fight next year in in Rarotonga when the Cooks hosts the the forum, and uh, for years to come, simply because uh, a number of major powers like the United States and France, increasingly China, are very interested in the possibility of tapping into uh, deep ocean resources.
0: How did the video speech by Kamala Harris go down?
2: Look, it was interesting because um, the Forum really didn't want the major powers to, to come along and, and dominate the agenda this year. It was the first time since 2019 that Forum leaders had had a chance to sit down face-to-face, and they had you know, these key issues about the 2050 Blue Pacific strategy about sorting out the fight with the Micronesians over the the future of the forum structure. But um, Fiji invited um, the U.S. Vice President to give a video speech to the assembled leaders. You know, and this reflects U.S. concerns about China's political influence in the region and the recent tour by the um, People's Republic Foreign Minister, Wang Yi, who, as you will have followed in the newspapers, uh, made quite a splash when he visited uh, a number of island states around uh, the Pacific, including East Timor, Timor Timor-Leste, signed a number of uh, um, trade, uh, investment and security agreements um, uh, in the region. So the Americans say that they're back. The Americans say that they, having ignored the island states for many years, that they acknowledge they haven't really kept up with uh, the concerns of island states, that they want to engage more, and Kamala Harris made a number of speeches um, promising, uh, uh, you know, new commitments, as well as an embassy already announced earlier in the year by Secretary of State Tony Blinken for the Solomon Islands. Um, Harris announced new U.S. embassies would be established in Kiribati and in Tonga. Uh, she pledged a lot more Peace Corps volunteers around the region They would appoint a special envoy to the Pacific Islands Forum, so there'd be a designated person within the UN bureaucracy to do diplomatic engagement on a regular basis. They announced plans to fund triple US funding under the uh, South Pacific Tuna Treaty, which is a treaty that was signed 30 years ago about uh, a multilateral treaty covering US fisheries in the region. So lots of promises, um, lots of pledges, but most island leaders are pretty skeptical they've seen this before on many occasions you know and then there's not been much follow through you know going back to the days of george w bush and, and george herbert walker bush you know there have been pledges from the us that they're really committed to the region you know in 2012 uh, hillary clinton uh, then secretary of state came to the pacific islands forum in rarotonga made all sorts of pledges and promises not much happened And you've seen also the disruption that can come with a change of government and a change of administration in Washington. Thus, um, President Barack Obama pledged $3 billion to the Green Climate Fund, a global mechanism for funding mitigation, adaptation, climate action, warmly welcomed by Pacific countries at the time. But Obama only got a $1 billion out the door to this global climate finance mechanism before he lost office to Donald Trump. And Trump just announced that he was withdrawing from the Green Climate Fund and wouldn't give the $2 billion that they pledged. Now that's 20% of the budget for this uh, global mechanism. And so for island states, they're pretty horrified by Trump's uh, agenda. And I think they're watching warily about what's happening in um, uh, Washington at the moment with the Biden administration under significant pressure economically and politically, uh, with midterm elections due to be uh, held in November. Currently, the U.S. Senate is 50-50. There's even a couple of rogue senators, a guy called Joe Manchin, who comes from the coal mining areas of West Virginia, uh, who's already refusing to let Biden's climate agenda through the the U.S. Congress. If the Democrats lose control of the Senate in November, bye-bye money for climate action. And then Donald Trump and his uh, surrogates are preparing to cause trouble in 2024. So the island leaders have seen this all before, pledges from the United States, commitment that they'll work together in an an appropriate way, but then the change of administration means uh, that's a problem. And as we've seen in Australia, the change from a a coalition government, nine years of coalition government, to the Albanese government, can mean significant positive steps forward for the islands, just as uh, a change towards the right will mean a, a retrograde step back. I think people are pretty wary that American politics on this area is driven by China, not by the concerns of island states. People are not naive about the American agenda.
0: And how is the forum feeling about France?
2: Look, there wasn't much discussion about France at the meeting this year. And indeed, I interviewed President Louis Mapu of New Caledonia Uh, who was attending his first face-to-face forum leaders meeting. Mapu was elected in July last year, July 2021. He's the first pro-independence leader that New Caledonia's had in the government for 40 years. He's a Kanak, leading Kanak independence activist. I interviewed President Mapu, and it's indeed in the latest edition of Ireland's Business Magazine, who I write for, has just come out, talking to Mapu about, you know, the focus on France. And he said, well, look, when people talk about possible military bases in countries like the Solomon Islands, we wonder, where is the discussion about the military agreements that France has in the region through its territories? Territories like New Caledonia, like French Polynesia. And I think this was really noticeable. It was striking that Australia, uh, despite the new Albanese government, still continued to play a rotten role uh, behind the scenes uh, when it comes to the diplomacy of the forum. There was a major report presented to the forum about a ministerial mission from the Pacific Islands Forum that went to report on the referendum on self-determination held in New Caledonia last December. People who listen to this program regularly will know that New Caledonia has had a series of referendums around political independence and self-determination, and connect customary and political leaders were opposed to the referendum being pushed ahead so fast in December last year because of the COVID pandemic, because France was really trying to ram through their own agenda rather than address the concerns of New Caledonians. And so there was a massive non participation turnout halved, and basically most independent supporters refused to vote in the referendum last year. It was largely a farce. And the forum mission that visited there, including three senior forum diplomats, and the Secretary General of the forum himself, Henry Puna, was Part of the mission, put in a very critical uh, report to um, uh, the forum leaders uh, in Suva when they came together in July. That report, basically, um, it's a much more complex report, but it, you know the bottom line was that the, the December 2021 referendum in New Caledonia lacked legitimacy and lacked credibility. So it's a significant blow to France. That report's not been publicly released, but I managed to get a copy of it, and if people are interested, they could go to the island's business website and read what I've, I've written about this. And what was noticeable was that Australia tried to water down the diplomatic language in the communique. The New Caledonia delegation wanted to, and indeed in the end got language that, you know, had the report welcomed, so that the forum as a whole welcomed this report, which basically said that the referendum was not credible or legitimate. Now, Australia tried to water down the language in the communique at the time of the forum foreign ministers' meeting that preceded the leaders' meeting. Why would that happen? Well, as people will know, Prime Minister Albanese has just been in Paris meeting with French President Emmanuel Macron, trying to rebuild the relations that were ruptured by the AUKUS agreement in September 2021. Australia... Has just paid $830 million to the French corporation Naval Group, Naval Group, for the submarines that we didn't get. Um, A rather expensive thing. And Pacific Island governments look askance that we're paying literally hundreds of millions of dollars for submarines that never appeared um, at a time where they're desperate for climate finance. And, uh, you know, Australia has been trying to woo France on a global stage to rebuild the technological, political links, Australia has an agreement with France that allows Australian Defence Force units, Royal Australian Navy, to use naval bases that France has in Neumia. Um Similarly, French naval forces can use Australian military bases on the east coast of Australia. Now, often that's for humanitarian and disaster response, uh, quite useful things, But for the Canucks, they look at this cooperation between the Australian Defence Force and the French armed forces in New Caledonia and they wonder what's going on. And as Mathou said to me on the record, where is the discussion about the military agreements that France has in the region through its territories at a time where people are talking about possible military bases in countries like the Solomon Islands? Obviously, Chinese military bases are no good, but French military bases are okay. And the Canucks believe that you know there needs to be a wider regional discussion about the militarisation that exists at the moment, as well as concern about Chinese militarisation in the future.
0: Was concern expressed about the fact that West Papua wasn't on the agenda?
2: For civil society groups, this was a, a, a serious blow. For a number of years, since about 2015, rights of the people of West Papua to self-determination to an end to Indonesian military operations, to enormous human rights abuses, the jailing of political prisoners in West Papua has been a a core regional agenda for church leaders, for civil society leaders, and indeed for some governments, um, particularly governments like Vanuatu and the FLNKS in New Caledonia. You know, civil society groups forged it onto the the agenda under previous Secretary-General Dame Meg Taylor, who's uh, Papua New Guinean. So each year at the forum, you know, there was a discussion about West Papua, and for a number of years, forum leaders have called for a visit to West Papua by the UN Human Rights Commissioner, Human Rights Rapporteur, uh, Michelle Bachelet of Chile. Now, Indonesia, for years, has stonewalled the UN, saying that they don't want the United Nations to send a reporting mission about the human rights situation in West Papua. And this comes as Indonesia over the last couple of years has been deploying more military forces, more uh, police, more BRIMOB, their paramilitary police. There's been a series of crackdowns um, against West Papuan nationalists. And indeed, Indonesia is currently trying to divide the western half of the island of New Guinea into five administrative regions Currently, um, West Papua, the western part of, of New Guinea Island, is divided into two provinces, Papua and West Papua. In an attempted at divide and rule to break up uh, West Papuan nationalism, Indonesia is now proposing that there be five, not two, administrative regions. And there's enormous public protest going on as we speak, which is being met with repression by the Indonesian authorities. There's a lot of anger among civil society, that this year in the forum, this issue was not on the agenda. Um, the president of the United Liberation Movement of West Papua, an umbrella body for nationalist groups in West Papua, Benny Wender, had called for the forum to reiterate its past call for a UN mission to West Papua. That wasn't in the final communique, to the great disappointment of governments like Vanuatu and to most of the civil society and church groups that I spoke to in Fiji. Once again, Australia's role in this is, is not healthy. Um, one of the first visits that Prime Minister Albanese made after his election was to uh, Indonesia, where he met um, with um, President uh, Jokowi, Joko Widodo of Indonesia. You know, they rode bicycles around um, Borgoa Palace. Uh, there's a lot of talk about trade opportunities and so on no mention of West Papua in their meeting similarly Fiji Prime Minister Bainimarama of Fiji who's been a supporter of Indonesian sovereignty over West Papua he traveled to uh, Bali for the recent G20 meeting the group of 20 uh, major world powers Bainimarama was the first Pacific Islands leader ever to address the G20 which was hosted by Indonesia this year in Bali And so, you know, Australia, PNG, Fiji, some of the larger members of the forum have been um, very reluctant to have uh, Indonesia criticised publicly. And I think it was a worrying sign that West Papua was absent from the final communique. Even, uh, you know, anodyne statements about the need to protect human rights uh, um, were lacking. The regional agendas um, are are played out uh, within the forum as well as with the major powers like China, the United States, France, European Union and others. You know, civil society voices are really crucial in this, from trade unions, from churches, from women's organisations and others, to try and keep these broader human rights agendas, self-determination agendas, on the, the topics to be discussed.
0: Final words, Nick?
2: Look, it was a, an important meeting of the forum. You know, as I say, it was the first face-to-face meeting, where leaders could get together very much in the Pacific way and talk, debate behind closed doors and in public about what are the concerns and priorities. And as I've suggested, between island states, certainly between community groups, civil society, churches, trade unions and others and their own governments, there are issues around democratic rights and human rights, around self-determination struggles in Bougainville, in West Papua, in New Caledonia, French Polynesia, about the environment, um, protecting the environment from deep-sea mining and the plunder of fisheries and uh, mining companies that are very much interested in the vast resources of the area. You know, the Pacific Islands Forum is is an important organisation, but it's one that's under stress. And Australia, as the largest member of the forum, plays a key role, partly as a donor, partly as a participant. And I think there's real challenges ahead. Prime Minister Albanese got a warm welcome in Suva, simply because he's not Scott Morrison. But there are issues where Australia is on the wrong side of history. We're on the wrong side of the debate about decolonisation in the region as we cosy up to France to repair the damage done by the AUKUS agreement. We're on the wrong side of history when it comes to fossil fuel subsidies for the mining industry in Australia, plans to open new coal, gas and fossil fuel projects. We're on the wrong side of history when it comes to nuclear questions. We're about to buy nuclear submarines at vast expense. At the same time that Forum Island countries are calling for nuclear disarmament and the abolition of nuclear weapons, 10 Forum Island countries, including our neighbour Aotearoa in New Zealand, have signed and ratified the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So the Albanese government had a good forum in Fiji in 2022 when they go to the Cook Islands next year, Tonga the year after, there's going to be some sharper questions. There's going to be some calls for actions. And Albanese and Penny Wong have uh, said that they want to run a First Nations policy as part of Australian foreign policy. They want to respect Indigenous peoples, and they're talking about a a First Nations envoy and uh, integrating within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade First Nations principles. Well, the number one principle is the right to self-determination. That's a challenge in Australia, as we know, with the debate around uh, the Uluru Statement, the right to self-determination for Aboriginal peoples, Torres Strait Islanders. That's certainly an issue for um, um, neighbouring countries where the Kanak people of New Caledonia, the Maui people of French Polynesia, they want to see the First Nations principles that Australia talks about put into action there's some challenges ahead for the Albanese government.
0: Great to talk to you, Nick.
2: Thank you, as always, Jan. Look forward to talking again.
0: And, of course, Nick is Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher with an amazing knowledge of the Pacific and the peoples.
1: 3CR
2: Community Radio, 855 a.m.
0: Imagine what it would be like
4: to be homeless in a city under curfew and in lockdown.
1: When your everyday life has been turned upside down and it becomes illegal to be on the street.
4: Tune in to Homeless in Hotels.
1: A three-part radio series giving voice to the people who went from a life on the street to a life in hotels.
4: And the support workers experiencing the shifting ground on the front line of COVID-19.
1: Premiering on Thursday, July 28. 12pm to 1pm
4: on
0: 3CR 855am Homeless in Hotels a 3CR supporter The People's Forum on the Ukraine War was held late last week chaired by Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees from Sydney University. Stuart, how long was the planning for this event and bringing together of the four distinguished Australians to be on the panel?
5: I mean, I shouldn't boast, but it was basically 99% my doing in the sense that I had correspondence with Richard Falk and he talked to me about the People's Tribunal, which in the 1960s um, Bertrand Russell had created to make a judgment about the Vietnam War. And I decided, well, we ought to do something, but we can't, we can't have a tribunal. we not a, that's too, too much paraphernalia. But it was pretty obvious that people needed to have some way to express their anxiety about the war and, and how it was reported. So basically, I mean, I got enough experience to know did the support of, um, you know, half a dozen organizations. So I basically picked up the phone and phoned Affinity, the Sydney Peace Foundation, the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, etc., so that we could we could get their logos. And then I think I did. I think I had a discussion with Sue Wareham quite early on. I mean, the two people whom I discussed it with were Joe Camilleri and Sue Wareham. So Sue was against anything going beyond two hours, which was sensible. Originally, I thought we'd have a face-to-face meeting in a big theatre in Sydney, followed by a second one in Melbourne. But then that looked pretty unrealistic. And the the Zoom zoom was ten times better. And I think the only difficulty I had was trying to decide which person who was an expert on Russia to cover the triggers for war. Jake Lynch is pretty expert on on the media, Joe Camilleri is such a polymath character that he could do almost anything.
0: And then you found Graeme Gill.
5: Yeah, well, I knew Graham from way back, as we were colleagues. I knew he was a post-Soviet politics expert. And as soon as I asked him, he said, yeah, he'd love to, he'd love to do it. So um, that gave us a lot of credibility, I think, because he's um, in his field he's a bit of a giant, or used to be. We all used to be, Jan. <laughs>
0: well, let's talk about. I won't talk about Sue because I've, as I said, I've got her on the program as well. But what did Graeme Gill have to say in his contribution?
5: Well, I think he has more. He had intimate knowledge of the inner circles of Soviet politics. I mean, he said he, he said the idea that Putin was going it alone was false. That Putin had always had a network of had a, had a circle of. Of advisers and supporters, and that he'd, he'd always consulted them. So he was merely reflecting what others, like Lavrov and um, and, the, and the generals, had, had said. That was one key issue. I think he refuted the idea that it was that it was a NATO fault, even if NATO's expansion was perceived by the Russians as a problem. Um, he certainly identified the the possibility that sensible discussions 10 years ago could have averted this.
0: What about um, Jake Lynch? What was his contribution?
5: Jake's contribution was really to say that, not just the Australian media, but they were, uh, too too much of the media were warmongers. They were more concerned about, well, they gave a black and white picture, the good and the bad you know, the so-called democracies against the autocracies. And that was a kind of lazy lazy way, a lazy and unfaithful way of representing what was going on in the actual war. And he he argued that, you know, leading writers in the mass media, in the mainstream media, were seldom challenged. There wasn't a mechanism for challenging their their views. But most important of all, he... He actually listed, because he put it all up in a PowerPoint presentation, he listed the alternative media and he gave first prize to Pearl's and Irritations. If you want to get the proper, what he called the peace-oriented view of the news, you have to read, you have to go to this, to, to these media. Joe looked at the disastrous consequences for, for everybody, for the people who've lost their lives, for the families who are grieving, for the massive destruction to the environment, and for the possible famines around the world that will follow, so that was one of the things. He also, I mean, Joe is a great believer in in a sort of civil society uprising through greater awareness. I mean, Joe's argument is that we we need we only need 10% of the population uh, in different countries to be uh, 10 times more aware. Uh, and to protest on behalf of, uh, uh, of of the of the peace with justice agenda to to achieve it, he says, you know, you don't you don't even need 50%, but we need at least 10%. is what he argued. You know, we probably although we had over 400 people registering for the forum, which was, was which in many ways was quite remarkable. said you no know, there are millions and millions of people who are who get their... who get what they think they know from the front page of the Sun Herald or the Daily Telegraph.
0: Well, the subtitle to the forum was What is Australia's Role in Giving Peace a Chance? What did the speakers Uh, and the panel talk about in that area?
5: One of my proposals... I mean, I was in the chair, but I had to sum it up. Um, I mean, I didn't interrupt the speakers. And in some ways, the answer to the question what is Australia's role came from not just from the speakers, but from the whole range of questions from the audience. One was to reject, or to, to go some way to reject the reliance on the, the United States. The, the alliance with the United States was hugely problematic, and that Australia wants to, needs to intellectually, politically be more independent. One of my proposals was that, why wouldn't why wouldn't Australia have a portfolio for peace? We always have ones for defence, which is a euphemism for war. Why wouldn't we have a minister for peace? Maybe in the um, environment Department of Environment, which is privisex portfolio. The other thing which, which Joe and other, others mentioned is the multiplication of, of initiatives to promote peace in the arts, different kinds of uh, music, poetry and so on people felt that pretty strong i guess the other issue was that you know about by the country asking australia the government of australia to stop repeating the um reference to the the world order the rules of law order when australia is far too has never respected the rules of law order it only does so uh, occasionally so, the, the, the plea for Australia to be much more consistent about the respect for international law was pretty strong. I, if I had to make a last comment, it was about to say uh, to people, for God's sake, look at the alternative media, don't rely on the, on the mainstream.
0: Can you talk a bit more about the audience participation?
5: Yeah, well, they, I mean, there were so many questions, it could have gone on for hours. And and they came from overseas as well as, as well as within, within Australia. I mean, one question was, why is there not more public interest and participation? If we are threatened with the possibility of nuclear war, because that was one of the, the, the dangers of this, uh, of this uh, Ukraine conflict, then why aren't the public more uh, outraged that was one thing. Um, is the Australian government going to sign the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, you know, stand apart from the UK and, uh, and, uh, and the United States? Questions as to what, whatever is the point of buying nuclear weapons? Questions about why do we need to have enemies in, like Russia and China in order to formulate a foreign policy? And then there was probably the best question for me came from a, a professor at at soccer university in japan was what is the contribution of music to peace building that was his question and did
0: you answer that well
5: one? there were lots of, i mean i said well, I, I thought that was delighted and i'd like to answer that question but uh, but as i'm in the chair i really shouldn't do so and and dear joe camilleri said Stuart, you have to answer that question look my answer to that has to do I mean, you could answer it with folk songs or pop or jazz or classical music. You could talk about, um you know, the Beatles singing Give Peace a Chance. You could talk about John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine all the people sharing all the world, etc. But my answer was about the the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, which is called the Peace Symphony. And it's the national anthem of the european union and the words for the peace symphony were written by a german poet who said he wanted his work to be a kiss for the whole earth in other words 150 years ago he was anticipating climate change and said for god's sake do something about it and uh, do something about climate change associated with war which was another if i can make a final point Uh, to you, Jan, which is that you can't, you cannot talk about peace negotiations over Ukraine or anywhere else unless you ally with the other great violence occurring, which is climate change. You have to address both almost simultaneously. That convergence of um, concern about climate change with concern about the arms race and the weapons of war. They have to be addressed together.
0: And how are we going to get the world powers to do that?
5: I think because I think we have to generate other powers, like the the protest movements, like the as with the groups who um, supported the six groups who supported that people's forum. I mean, if we were to have another one in two months' time, I could get twelve groups to support it. So you have to multiply the interest. On the other hand, there's an example today of the absurdity of the the mass media. I mean, there was a rally outside Parliament yesterday about freeing Julian Assange. And on the front page of The Age this morning in Melbourne, there's a great big picture and a concern about some, the Neighbours television programme and all the pictures of the stars. And there is nothing, nothing at all about the big rally outside the Parliament to free Julian Assange. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, the media, in, in Jake's terms, the media sort of try to tell us what the issues are and they try to tell us how we should think about them.
0: Are you aware if any mainstream media covered that rally?
5: No, I'm not, no. But I mean, I, I, I haven't looked at the Canberra Times. They might have they done, done so, but... Um, their indifference to a massive injustice is just uh, is sickening
0: what were your closing
5: words uh, i guess my closing words were mostly concerned with and i've written it uh, an article for pearls and Irritations, probably come out next week it's mostly to, to pay attention to the language that everybody's using about this war and other wars because if if most of the language is about the arms industry or is about preparing for war and for for fighting war, then peace doesn't get on the agenda. On the other side of that coin, if you, if you constantly talk about not peace, but about peace with justice and how to get there in every possible context, then that increases the chances of achieving that goal. You have to talk about it. You know, George Orwell taught us that um, language corrupts thoughts. And thoughts corrupt language is what he said. And so if you have a small vocabulary, you only have small, very limited ideas. You'd only see the world in black and white, good, bad, successful, unsuccessful terms. And um, there's a whole range of rainbow shades in between that are missed. So pay attention to the language and <laughs> right on campuses and schools that... the the agendas of peace with justice need to be promoted. Sadly, the university, the the mediocre, thoughtless university managers across the country have spent the last 10 years closing just about every centre that was concerned to study and research peace.
0: Is Jake still hanging in there, though?
5: Yeah, I mean, they're, they're still there, but they're being absorbed. What little is left, what was called peace studies is being absorbed into some other big department that's happened all over the place they pretend that they haven't closed things down they just absorb them into business studies or or something euphemistically called social sciences but whereas um, i think you may have heard from sue Wareham that people would find it very strange if to discover a treatment for cancer you didn't conduct research into cancer if you want to promote peace, you have to conduct research into peace with the uh, but we haven't done so.
0: You said that perhaps in a couple of months you could do it again with more contributors, but we can't afford to wait a couple of months, can we, with this war? What it's doing to the people of the world.
5: No, but it no however, there are so many other conflicts going on. I mean the, if you look at what's happening to the Palestinians You'd have to say, why don't we pay as much attention to that as we are paying to Ukraine? Why don't we pay as much attention to what's happening to the poor people of Yemen, of Yemen and that war as we are doing over Ukraine? Why don't we pay as much attention to, to effective intervention in Myanmar as we are giving to Ukraine? My estimation is that to, to run what we did yesterday on Sunday evening and and I was very pleased with what happened. Very pleased with the public interest. It takes two months minimum to prepare that, and I, you know, I, I have one telephone and one notepad. <laughs> Unless your very powerful, very, very affluent radio station was to help me, <laughs> I'd have to be playing solo. Well, we used to have those, when I ran the Peace Foundation, we did have those resources.
0: Yeah.
5: I mean, they weren't huge, but they were significant. 50 students, we had offices, we had telephones, we had toilets and kitchens and photocopiers, all the administration you need, the paraphernalia you need to run a a campaign.
0: Well, I think you could say, Stuart, that it was a job very well done.
5: Yeah, no, look, I was pleased with it, and... um, Pearls and Irritations have, will have published all four papers. I saw that um, Graham Gild's paper was out today in Pearls and Irritations. And I think he'll publish. I've tried to write a summary of what happened. And I've stolen, you know, ideas from Emmanuel Kant, John Donne, John Lennon. I can't remember who else. So. <laughs> oh, I know. Um, yeah, W.B. Yates. There you go. I'm always stealing from poets
0: but I think it's also important to give another cheer up to pearls and Irritations.
5: oh yeah I think it's becoming the most important online journal across Australia really he dares to publish what other people don't where else do you get criticism constant trenchant criticism of the, of the behaviour of an apartheid racist state like Israel Most other journals don't touch that.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much.
5: Okay, Dan.
0: Tireless worker for Human Rights and Peace, Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855
4: on your dial. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app.
0: Fancy a sponsored overseas trip in the near future? If you're a parliamentarian, possibly an influential one, the probability it's that you will be offered to go to Israel, now officially named as an apartheid state. I'm wondering how that would fit with both your conscience and have you justified when you come back home. Well, if you are an Australian parliamentarian and you accept, you won't be the only one of the number of non-Australian government-sponsored trips to all countries between June 2018 and April 2022. go to Israel. It's part of a trend in recent years. Speaking now with Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. Jess, who are those who pay for these trips and decide where the travellers go?
3: They're often very conservative businessmen. The most predominant one is AJAP, the Australian Israel Jewish Affairs Council. Which is a self-appointed, self-organised group run predominantly from Melbourne businessmen and who are stridently involved in advocating for Israel's position, um, including with journalists. And then there's a group called the Institute for Strategic Leadership Dialogue. Um, who were, you might remember, Dunon who employed Tim Matheson, then Prime Minister Julia Gillard's husband. So they're predominantly run by businessmen who obviously have a political barrier to push.
0: And was Julia Gillard there on a trip while Matheson was employed by this man? Oh, that's a
3: great question. So that was in the period before our survey. So we'd have to go back and have a look in the we looked at the most recent period um of the last two years. So I'd have to go and check that. What we do know is that Julia Gillard was sent on one of these trips in university. So one of these trips have just gone for young Labour in New South Wales. So it's, these trips come all the time and um very early. So um I mean Tony Burke says he's been offered one of these trips. Twice a year since he even started at university. So that's kind of, I guess, how persistent and insistent they are in offering these all expenses paid first class trips.
0: What about to journalists and other people in the community? Do they get offered similar trips? Absolutely. We haven't done the
3: research to have a look at exactly how many um, and what the impact is, um, but we certainly know that they do send a lot of journalists to Israel as well. Um, Joe Hildebrand just got back from one of these trips. He's a journalist with the Herald Sun and he's already put out two very pro-Israel articles in the last couple of weeks. So certainly they are there for parliamentarians, for journalists and any other kind of leaders that they look out for.
0: Any idea of how much these trips could cost for an individual? Yeah, I mean,
3: we don't know the answer to that. What we've heard is that they are incredibly lavish trips. So there's helicopter rides over the Golan Heights, there's fancy dinners with business leaders in Israel, there is first-class travel and and hotels. So these are the things that we, we have heard. So I wouldn't think you'd be getting much change out of 15 or 20 grand per person, if all of that's true.
0: Well, we know that politicians do go on junkets like this to other countries, but is Israel the top one?
3: Uh, yeah, so what we've just done the research from 2018 to 2022, but the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has looked at the period 2010 to 2018, and in both those periods, so consistently in the last 12 years, parliamentarians are sponsored to go on trips to Israel by far more than anywhere else, by far more than any of our other major trading partners, by far any of the countries that Australians travel to and from. So it used to be China, previous to that, but in the last 12 years, it has definitely been Israel has solidified itself as the most popular destination to get donuts to from Australian politicians.
0: Looking at the itinerary in a bit more detail, the ones that go to Parliament, the parliamentarians, I'd imagine they'd have individual chauffeurs and individual guides and all lovely things to take them around and show them all the things that they want them to see. Yes, I I, I mean, that's probably a fair
3: assumption, but I actually haven't heard about the transport, But they certainly have guides and these people from the organisations travel with them, as I understand.
0: I'd imagine also that they don't get to meet too many Palestinians who live in Israel?
3: No, part of the challenge of these trips is that there is, they do get whisked into the West Bank for about two hours, as I can understand it, to meet with representatives of the Palestinian authorities um, in Ramallah. So as I often say to parliamentarians, it's like saying you've spent two hours in Canberra and you understand how Australia is. (laughs) So unfortunately, parliamentarians come away thinking that they have met with Palestinians and they do understand the Palestinian perspective, but they've got an incredibly cloistered view of that. They're not going to refugee camps. They're not going to go through checkpoints in the way that Palestinians have to go through checkpoints. So one of the most difficult things is that parliamentarians are getting 95% Israeli propaganda and 5% window into Palestine and and that very cloistered version of Palestine. And they come back thinking that they've seen quote unquote both sides. So some of our most difficult meetings with parliamentarians over the years has been when they say that, I've seen both sides, I've, I've experienced both perspectives. Um, and I remember a meeting where we were in with a former ambassador, to, Australian ambassador to Israel who just lost it. He was like, these things were the bane of our lives because they give such a misunderstanding about what the Palestinian perspective is or indeed the breadth of Israeli perspectives about this. So the groups that are sending people off are to the far right. So they're not even getting a quote-unquote moderate Israeli perspective that might be concerned about the occupation, that might be concerned about the lack of two-state solution, that might be concerned about Israeli settlement expansion. They're not hearing from any of those Israelis. They're only hearing from the extreme right-wing who present a narrative that Israel's the the victim.
0: What have you been able to find out about the actual people who do go the parliamentary members who do go, what parties they come from and what's their political allegiance sort of in Australia when you're thinking about left, centre or right? Yeah,
3: so it's interesting. So if we look at junkets junkets in total where the parliamentarians go, it's about equal um, on left and right, broadly left and right, in terms of where they go. But if you look at trips to Israel specifically, coalition parliamentarians are almost twice as likely to go on an, a pro-Israeli junket, an Israeli junket trip, than than ALP or crossbenchers. So it's very marked in this, this particular instance. And you would hope that this reflects the Labor Party's growing concern about their members going to see one side of the, the equation and not another. So uh, it was policy in New South Wales that for New South Wales parliamentarians, that if they, if they go to see Israel, they must spend equal time with Palestine. So that seems to be the new norm that would be reasonable and that it appears that Labor parliamentarians are taking up more than others. Um, there's been two visits to Palestine in this period, one we ran and one that was uh, co-sponsored by the Palestinian delegation. And an equal number, roughly, three Labor parliamentarians, two coalition parliamentarians, and a crossbench went to there. So in terms of going to visit Palestine in this period, it's been much more equitable, but certainly not in visits to Israel. I
0: want to come back to your APAN trips a little while later, but what about, mm. the, what about the payback or the quid pro quo of getting a free trip like that? What's expected of you when you come back? So the explicit expectation is that you go and speak to
3: one of their forums. So you go and talk about your experience in the forum, in the trip, and how that went. So you speak to funders of the trip and other members of the pro-Israeli community. So that's the explicit undertaking. But what certainly seems to be the informal expectations is that they will come back and be advocates for Israel. But that seems to be happening less and less. And, and the phrase that comes to mind is that whatever amazing experience you might have in Israel, when they're running a military occupation, when Palestinians are being subjugated, it's very hard to polish a turd. So what we're finding is actually despite these fancy junket trips, they are not keep turning people into uncritical Israel supporters. Previously, they seem to. Previously, if anybody stood up and talked about Israel, you could go back and look in their parliamentary record and see that they'd taken one of these study tours. But I think increasingly so, even with an incredibly blinkered perspective, it is hard for parliamentarians to ignore the reality that's going on for Palestinians.
0: Are you aware of any of these politicians actually getting up in parliament and talking about their visits to Israel? Not in detail,
3: not in detail. Certainly people refer to them um, and uh, I think of last June, I think it was Julian Hill who's a, mem- a Labor Member of Parliament here in Victoria, he gave a speech who was talking about, you know, the atrocities that were happening at that time, Israel was bombing Gaza and attacking Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, he, he referred to that he's been on an AJAC tour and he's been on an APAN tour and what he clearly sees is that major issue is Israeli settlements. So that's the one speech that comes to mind.
0: Apart from him, have you actually spoken to any politicians about their trips on a personal level? yeah, yeah
3: we've met with lots of parliamentarians and talked to them about their trips. And, I mean, they come back with a very clear narrative that they were presented by. Some of them have swallowed it hook, line and sinker unquestioningly. Others um, heard it and some things didn't quite add up for them. So, I mean, they're difficult conversations because when you have a profound international experience somewhere and you think about all the trips that you might have done, like they're very impactful. And what you see and experience, is, you know, often moves us deeply. So they talk about experiences of going to the Yad Vashem memorial in Tel Aviv, which is, I mean, in Jerusalem, excuse me, which is a Holocaust museum. Which you know, like I understand that that's a very significant experience for many Jewish people, but it's almost like they start the narrative with these terrible things happened to Jewish people, and then they got Israel, lucky for them. Israel's given them safety. And then, you know, they go to the border communities in Gaza and they talk to traumatised Israelis. So there's this narrative that's been built for them. So sometimes that's very deeply felt. Um, So it's often a deep sense of cognitive dissonance for parliamentarians to then listen to the Palestinian perspective um, because that was completely absent um, from their experience.
0: Let's talk a little bit about APAN tours. You haven't been able to organise any for a couple of years. Is that right? That's
3: right. Yeah, we ran one in our summer 2020 just before COVID hit and that's um, we had some other schedules, but unfortunately they've been the last ones we've been able to have. So we offer trips to Palestine. We don't give the, um, the luxurious version of a trip to parliamentarians. We do a bit of sharing of the costs, so we pay their on-the-ground costs and parliamentarians pay for their travel to Palestine and Israel. So we take both members of the public as well as parliamentarians and others to Palestine on these trips. So we very, very unapologetically give um, a perspective that centres Palestinians and their experiences, so they talk, our trips visit... Palestinians in their community. It visits human rights groups and Australian aid projects. It talks to diplomats. It talks to Israelis who are working working to end the dispossession of the Palestinian people. So we're about to, we're just looking at when we're going to offer our next public study tour. So if any listeners are interested in going uh, to Palestine, please send us an email contact at apan.org.au, the initials of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, contact at apan.org.au, and we'd love to keep you in the loop as we start to lock in our dates for a trip.
0: And also just to reiterate that you do go inside Israel as well, and I'm just wondering how the visitors are accepted or treated when the Israelis know that they are on an APAN tour how far they can go and what sort of reaction they get?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say that the Israeli government has an incredible amount of censorship and seeks to control what people do and say um, in terms of their trip, um, or in terms of their visits. So certainly um, if one were to disclose on the entry um, that they were coming to see and hear Palestinian experiences, they're not likely to get let in because Israel controls all the borders, not only to Israel, but also to Palestinian areas. So, and there was, in fact, an action a few years ago, they they called it um, a fly killer, where a whole lot of peace activists arrived in Tel Aviv airport and said they were coming in solidarity with Palestinians, and every one of them got knocked back. So it's, it's unfortunately a difficult... Because Israel choose to play it that way, it's very difficult for people arriving into... Um, Israel or arriving through an Israeli checkpoint in the West Bank to be able to say fully why they're travelling.
0: And also Lebanon?
3: Yeah, um, so our trips have previously gone to Lebanon. With, I'm not sure whether that will be the case, but certainly there's Palestinians in, in refugee camps in Lebanon who they and their um, ancestors have been there since 1947, waiting for the international community to come good on their promise to allow them to return to their homes.
0: And it would be good if some of these people who go on these Israeli tours actually stopped over for a day or so in a a refugee camp, particularly in Lebanon, just to see the results of the establishment of the State of Israel.
3: Yeah, so we've written to every single new parliamentarian who's just entered the Australian Federal Parliament, and there's there's scores of them now, saying you will be offered... One of these all expenses junket trips to Israel. And we ask that you only go on them if you're going to spend equal time with Palestinians. So we're really trying to shift this sense that it's okay to go and see one perspective, um, and ignore the other, particularly given that Israel's under the, under the watch of the UN uh, Human Rights Council, the UN General Assembly, Um, the UN Security Council for continuing to breach international law that it's clearly not okay for Australian parliamentarians to hear the side of the perpetrator of human rights abuses and not to be listening to the experiences of those experiencing those human rights abuses
0: and also the fact Jessica that they're going to a state which has been named by many including their own human rights groups as an apartheid state
3: absolutely
0: absolutely yeah,
3: no, I mean it, it. It shows the disconnect I think between historical Australian political perspectives about Israel Palestine um, and the community's perspectives as well as human rights groups' perspectives, and it is horrifying to think that that these uh, human rights abuses have really been able to go along unchecked by our parliamentary community. But I think that's shifting. That's shifting. In the last 12 months, we've seen 33 parliamentary speeches or questions asked in parliament that focus on Palestinian human rights. So we see the tide turning, and we know that parliamentarians stopping taking these fancy junkets to Israel is going to be part of turning
0: the tide. Just looking at the role of APAN at the moment with the, the new parliament, mm-hmm. the, the Labor parties in power, There's lots of teals. How are you managing all that?
3: Yeah, so I mean, APAN certainly knocks on every single door um, in Australian Parliament until they've shown themselves to be antagonistic towards Palestine. We want to have a conversation with everybody. And we have conversations, ongoing conversations with people in all the political parties about Palestine. Um, Our initial primary focus, I mean, there's a couple of things that we need the Labor government to do this year. One is to increase um, aid funding back to Palestine because it was decimated under the former government and also to revert our voting in the U- UN General Assembly and that's coming up in the next couple of months so that our voting supports Palestinian human rights in the UN General Assembly. So there's a couple of small immediate things but one of our big focuses is to support the implementation of Labor's policy which is to recognise Palestine. And the recognition of Palestine is something we've been pushing for quite a number of years Um, not because it's going to be the panacea that's going to end the occupation, but one of the things that has kept Israel going is the sense that they can undertake all these human rights abuses with impunity from the international community. And for Australia, who frankly is one of Israel's last allies internationally, if Australia is to say, we will recognise Palestine, then that symbolically will be a powerful gesture that Israel is on notice that Australia will no longer um, want to shake the hands of one party and not another and will actually practice what it preaches in terms of recognising everybody equally. So certainly there will be pressure for the Labor Party not to implement that policy, um, but one of our key early priorities is to support them to implement that and to recognise Australia. So Australia joins the majority of world countries in recognising Palestine.
0: Finally, Jessica, it's also encouraging that there have been a number of prominent Australians, whether they're parliamentarians or ex-parliamentarians, who used to support the State of Israel but now openly support the rights for Palestinians.
3: Yeah, it is really encouraging. And I think part of that is that we, um, a little bit like we um, understand the truth of our own history on this continent with First Nations Australians, then we're also starting to understand more deeply the the real history that happened in Israel-Palestine. And for so long here in Australia, we only heard the Israeli story about what happened there and what continues to happen here, and these junkets were part of that. So I think uh, what we're we're seeing is more and more parliamentarians are listening to both sides. You know, I mean, you can't... But in, in listening to whether it's the amnesty report or Israel's bombing of Palestinians, you can't not see that Israel is an apartheid state that is abusing Palestinians on a daily basis and is maintaining this brutal occupation. I mean, it's, it's getting harder and harder to pretend that that's not the case. Um, I remember Bob Hawke saying to us a number of years ago, he said, I didn't change. My views didn't change. Uh, it was Israel that changed. Now, clearly, he had a big blind spot in terms of um, Israel's history wasn't just about trying to implement the socialist dream. Israel's history was um, about um, dispossessing and subjugating Palestinians. But that aside, Bob Hawke's blind spot aside, he certainly shifted before he passed. And his perspective was that he, he saw that Israel shifted to becoming a permanent occupier, a belligerent country, who clearly was able to feel comfortable about implementing apartheid policies.
0: And becoming a member of APAN, how is that going to help the Palestinians?
3: Yeah, so APAN was formed 11 years ago to be a united national voice for Palestine. And and certainly the more numbers we have, the more sense that there is a powerful grassroots movement that is behind all the things that we do, whether it's going to see senior media executives or, or junior or senior parliamentarians, that the, the work of APAN is only effective if there's a sense that there's people power behind that. So we'd love you to join APAN. There's a small financial cost which certainly helps to boost the work as well. But it shows that we are a growing, unstoppable, passionate movement for human rights in Palestine. And so it would be great if, and if anybody could join or donate. So apan.org.au is our website. We'd love to see more people join this great movement or become more involved in this movement
0: for Palestinian human rights. Thanks, Jessica. Lovely. Thanks, Jan. That webpage again is apan.org.au and the person I've been speaking to is the Executive Officer, Jessica Morrison.
3: and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations, from the traditional black and white fear to an array of modern designs. All scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au, a a 3CR supporter.
0: Dr. Sue Wareham is the President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and one of the four participants in the recent People's Forum on the Ukraine War, chaired by Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees, who we heard from earlier in the program. So the subtitle of the forum was, What is Australia's role in giving peace a chance? What was your contribution to the steps to achieve this? But first I'd like to ask you what you believe Australia has or hasn't been doing so far to achieve this.
4: Well, Australia's contribution to the war so far is pretty much the same as our great ally, the United States. And this is not a surprise. Australia tends to fall into line on matters like this. And so our contribution has been pretty much in supplying some weaponry and really not presenting any alternative and there are alternatives which we might come to any alternative to just pouring in weapons into the country and expecting that the situation is somehow going to improve so what's been lacking is a is a stepping back and looking at how the situation could go in in a different direction if if there were some different goals other than just punishing russia and Ensuring that, uh, well, trying to ensure that Russia cannot do anything like this again, which is pretty much what the US has turned their focus to. So it's been disappointing a lack of reflection on the history, history of the situation on Australia's part and the part of other Western nations, our allies. And none of that is to, to excuse the um, aggression shown by President Putin in relation to Ukraine. It's been absolutely illegal, unconscionable, utterly devastating. But none of these situations generally come out of the blue and that's what's been missing from analysis and from response in Australia and elsewhere.
0: Well, your contribution was entitled Beyond Catastrophes, Channels to Prevent or End Wars. What was your contribution? Can you explain what you said? Yes,
4: I think one of the main things that we that I, that I wanted to get across in the talk, at least, was that we tend to view wars. In fact, the main news we get fed are the um, statements from leaders who who are not the ones who are putting their their lives at risk. They're making statements on behalf of millions of people who are under attack. And yes, we do. Get some some news from those who are under who are un, under attack about how challenging and terrible the situation is, uh, as in as indeed it is. But the stories generally stop there. We don't get a look at behind the scenes. What were the what are the and sort of probing <clears throat> probing to try to find out what agendas are going on here in the war. So my point was to look at the situation from the perspective of all those who are suffering, the ones who are uh, fearing for for their own and their families' lives, the ones for whom deprivation of essential supplies is a real risk and the ones who are seeing their infrastructure attacked around them. Is it really in the best interests of all of those who are suffering the effects of the war to have the war continuing, or is it in their best interests to actually look very, very seriously at the need for negotiations because there need to be there needs to be negotiations for as long as it takes negotiations and negotiations until the fighting stops because any alternative is just ongoing suffering for innocent people mm-hmm. on both sides because we should remember that both sides use conscripts in the war. Most of the Russian conscripts would Probably prefer not to be fighting in Ukraine so the vast majority of the suffering is on the Ukrainian side but uh, the impacts are on both sides of the war so we need to put these people front and center and look at their interests and not just the interests of big power politics which is pretty much what we're fed by our news media. There have been
0: some discussions and negotiations but they don't seem to get very far and they
4: give up very easily Yes, I think that's an important point. They do seem to give up pretty easily and that's a stark contrast to what we see with the fighting. I mean, when there are huge challenges with the fighting, um, the line is just, well keep on, we've got to keep on and on for as long as it takes, but we never apply that same standard for as long as it takes to negotiations. And of course, negotiations are going to be extremely difficult. Nobody pretends that they it's just a matter of sitting down for a few days and it'll all be fine. Negotiations are extraordinarily difficult, and yet we don't put our best minds and efforts and funding into making sure that we've got the absolutely very best skills in negotiation available. We don't fund our diplomacy properly. We don't fund the the skill of negotiation uh, properly. All of our, most of our resources in relation to these situations goes into weaponry and uh, training people to fight but we need to be training people and funding people to use words and and negotiation and to use those skills for as long as it takes because it's going to be difficult, but there's no alternative unless we regard the prospect of a totally destroyed Ukraine as acceptable, which it's clearly not.
0: Well, you could say that negotiations are one way to prevent or end wars. What other ways are there?
4: That's really the key, key one. But part of the negotiation, uh, uh, an extremely important part in, of the negotiation, um, is to acknowledge that there are security concerns on both sides um, in this war. And that's, and again, that's not to excuse the brutal Russian aggression, but it is to acknowledge that Russia has had security concerns particularly about the expansion of NATO um, ever since the end of the Cold War and the way the end of the Cold War was handled by the West. Now, unless we acknowledge that Russia does have legitimate security concerns, then uh, the negotiations are going to be uh, even even more than difficult, going to be almost impossible. So um, it's not enough just to sit down at the negotiation table. There needs to be acknowledgement that all security concerns um, must be addressed. In the particular war um, that we're considering at the moment, the Ukraine war, the other very serious risk, in fact, a risk that's the highest it's been for decades is the prospect of nuclear war. President Putin has raised his prospect. He's threatened to use nuclear weapons. He's um, said he plans to move nuclear weapons from Russia to Belarus. This is all upping the risk of nuclear war, and it's not just President Putin. Uh, the U.S. has on many occasions in, in other wars also threatened to use nuclear weapons and there's always the risk of an accidental, so-called accidental nuclear war or unleashing of these weapons when that outcome wasn't intended. So the absolutely urgent need now is to prevent nuclear war. If nuclear war were to occur in Ukraine um, or or in fact anywhere, the results for the whole planet, for all of us, would be utterly catastrophic and possibly terminal for much of the planet that's one of the it's at all, almost an, a hidden risk in in the current war the only global initiative currently that's heading in the right direction uh, in relation to nuclear weapons or at least I'll say the most important global initiative is the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which came into force legally last year in January. So it's an absolute imperative to promote the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, Prime Minister Albanese has committed his government to sign and ratify the treaty, which is a hugely promising step, and we look forward to that happening. Um, But the... TPNW, the nuclear weapons ban treaty, needs to be promoted globally. There needs to be a widespread acceptance that we absolutely have to get rid of these weapons because that's the only way to prevent them being used. There are quite a lot of other measures that we could talk about in relation to ending the war. There's the issue of how do we use the rule of law, um, international law, and currently we most often see it being used not impartially as it should be applied but we see the rule of law pretty much being used as a political tool Um, and i'm thinking of the the example of calling for war crimes trials now war crimes trials are a, a very important part of the rule of law when war crimes are committed or the very act of aggression itself which President Putin has conducted in Ukraine. All these things um, are illegal and they need to be treated in that way which means brought to trial the perpetrators or alleged perpetrators brought to trial. But instead what we see instead of the rule of law being applied impartially Is that we see it being used against our enemies, in this case against President Putin. So there are calls for President Putin to be tried as a war criminal which he absolutely should be. But we didn't see the same calls for war crimes trials in relation, except from civil society actors, in relation to the 2003 invasion of Iraq for example. Now Hundreds of thousands of people died as a result of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which was illegal. And yet we don't see the same calls for trials for the perpetrators of that invasion. So the rule of law can really be and is being reduced to a pretty much a political tool. We use it against our enemies, but we'll forget about it when it when it doesn't suit us. And there can't be any any sort of stability or upholding of the respect for the rule of law when it's used in that fashion.
0: And in a sense, you could say that food is being used as a weapon in this war with the reliance on Ukraine and Russia for grain for the majority of the world, it seems. And because of this war, there's danger of malnutrition and death in
4: many countries of the world, yes, that's absolutely true, Jan, and that's an additional reason that the war must be ended, that uh, literally millions of people around the world and particularly in Africa, are um, heading for or not only heading for but actually uh, suffering malnutrition and the obvious um, other other effects of denial of food and lack of food security so the use of food as a weapon is absolutely prohibited in times of war and again it needs to be called out but it needs to be called out um, impartially I mean if we want to go back about a century Britain and allies during during and even after World War One used denial of food food blockade of Germany as as a weapon Look at the Vietnam War and the defoliation that the U.S. conducted in Vietnam uh, with destruction of food crops. And this tactic has been used in, in many wars. It's absolutely pre- prohibited. It's illegal. It's unconscionable. Uh, and President Putin is doing it now. So, yes, it needs to be called out. And it's an additional reason that this war must finish.
0: Are we speaking to... Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees a little later about the other contributors, but what did you think of the audience
4: participation in this forum? The audience participation was very strong and that's extremely encouraging. There were over 200, 200 people online and there was good participation from a lot of them. The chat line was was running hot during just about the whole whole forum. So good input and a lot of concern about what's happening. So I think a lot of people in Australia would be looking at what's happening in Ukraine with a sense of despair, quite justifiably, but also with a um, wanting to know what what can we do? How can we turn the situation around? It needs to finish and people can recognise that it needs to finish for the sake of the people in Ukraine. But it also needs to finish for the sake of the uh, sake of the rest of us, not just because of the prospect of nuclear war, although that's a part of it. A great willingness, and I, um, one of the important contributions was from Professor Joseph Camilleri uh, from La Trobe University, who was talking about the need for. Conversations all, all around the country, and in fact, globally, of course, people talking in, in small groups, one on one conversations about these matters and building on our own solidarity and building on the knowledge that there are things that people can do and we don't need to be sitting back feeling powerless in a situation like this. There are things that we can be advocating for and there are messages that we can be spreading and sending to our leaders. I will mention one of the other things, uh, which I also raised in the forum, which is pretty much the follow the money trail, and this relates not just to the Ukraine war, of course, but to, to all wars. Now, war following money, of course, refers to the fact that war is a very profitable business, and the world's biggest weapons companies, companies such as Lockheed Martin, Raytheon BAE Systems, and others, are making literally billions of dollars from the war war in Ukraine. They thrive financially on wars, they thrive on threats of wars and they thrive on undermining undermining stability and upsetting, um, raising international tensions, raising tensions between nations. These are all the things that prompt nations to buy up big on weapons and you know, feed, feed into the likelihood of wars happening and wars being perpetuated. So if we follow the money trail in Australia, we look at the influence that the weapons industry, including those big players and others, the influence that the weapons industry um, is having in Australia. And it's a pretty strong one. We look at it. Um, our my particular organisation, Medical Association for Prevention of War, is looking at the role of the weapons industry in educational institutions, uh, including schools and including down to primary level. The industry is trying to promote their, well, the, the companies themselves are trying to promote their brand names um, among even primary school students, and their goal is to attract the best STEM science, technology, engineering, and math students to a career in the industry and hopefully within their own particular company. So this is a really, really dangerous uh, development which is going on before our very eyes with not much attention being paid to it. So there are a lot of things that that can be done to turn around the role of, undermine the role of warfare in our world today. Okay, Sue, thanks for
0: your contribution again. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Jen. And Dr. Sue Ware from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War was one of four participants in the People's Forum on the Ukraine War, subtitled What is Australia's Role in Giving Peace a Chance? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.